Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether you should or should not dig these back out again. If you are ready for an 80s music deep dive, from Public Enemy to Wham, Eno to XTC, Madonna, hair metal, reggae, and all points in between, then crank the boombox, turn the Walkman up to 10, and ooh, let's go. Now, from the kitchen, Chris and Henry. Duke, 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 Duke of Searle. I don't think it was him. I think it was him. But I don't, I, I think we're obsessing on it. It's our first review. Welcome to 80s Music Exposed. I'm your host, Henry. And I'm Chris. And this is called Witty Banter. <laughs> This is the witty banter portion of the show. Say something funny, Chris. Like, right the fuck now. <laughs> it's like it's like when I was in that band a few years ago, and the guy that was the DJ that we went to play at the radio station didn't speak to me at all while we set up. And then when we went live on the air, he just looked over at me and on the air said, Oh, you're the bass player. Play the Barney Miller theme. Yeah, live in front of everybody. And you didn't know how to play it, probably. No, I didn't. I didn't. And I didn't and know I that was coming. Sure. I don't even... If you... I don't even know what the Barney Miller theme is. I think it's do, 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 do. No, I, I keep, I always do the Fleetwood Mac, uh, the chain, whenever I think of the Barney Miller theme. Yeah, that's the chain. So, that one. Yeah. Which, which, which would lead one to believe that we know a little bit about music history, Henry, because we are both big music nerds, are we not? Yes, we are big and music nerds. And how did we pick, let's refresh real quick, how do we pick the... Uh, Records that we're going to review for 80s music. Exposed. Several criteria. There's no way that we could go over every major album that was released in that month or do it with any degree of uh, absolute accuracy at all times. But, and we also are very much aiming not to just cover records that we like because we wouldn't want to be criticized uh, in, in a review or anything, in a one-star review. <laughs> For breaking the show down into just music that we like. Right. Right. All star, all music, five star uh, reviews. Right. The website, all, all music. Grammy nominees. That's right. Selections from history that we love because we know about that decade. We know what records were good and some are, and we want are it to worth, be, worth and, talking about. Admission. And we want it to be fun for yeah. us as well. And uh, the Rolling Stone year-end top 25. The thing we're not doing is we're not looking at what people are saying now. You're not going to see us look at Pitchfork's top 100 and try to uh, revisit that in that light. We're looking at what what people thought then, revisiting it now, and uh, giving a little bit of insight, analysis, and thought, maybe some criticism you know, on it from a couple of amateurs. Yeah, and so we, we just started this podcast, and we're really uh, proud of it and working hard on it, and we're... It's kind of awesome that we had a fan that did a big, long review, yeah. although it was kind of uh, a negative review, but that's okay. We needed, you know, some of the stuff we needed to uh, hear. Yeah, we're absolutely amateurs. Uh, we totally ripped off um, Scott and Drew's 80s all over format because we thought it was a good one and we thought it could work for music. And we have a lot of cool music to talk about. So, you know, Scott's, from what I understand, Scott Weinberg has been an online critic. A professional critic. Movie critic, yeah. Movie critic since the 90s. Uh, and uh, Drew McQueenie is, used to host Ain't It Cool News and, uh, and a film critic and screenwriter. They're very, they're yeah, very experienced in talking about 
movies and how to and organizing their thoughts along those lines. And we're just starting. And if we got if we got uh, to the year 1983, which is where I think they are with the movies, and we got to a level of uh, banter that they're at, we would be ecstatic. So yeah. they are definitely the goal. And I'm glad that somebody pointed out that we're not them because we are not them. And we're us, and we're going to do our best. Also, wanted to address Henry this thing about the dates, um, and and the the reviewer was right. The first episode, not every record in the first episode, was released in January of 1980. Um, if you are with us now, this is the March 1980 episode. Uh, a couple of the records in February were not actual so February get ready. releases. Get ready, well, it's going to be wrong. No, and I, I honestly, I. I took that to heart, and I made sure to arrange everything now exactly on. So for the whole year of 1980, there will be seven records that we will review, not um, in the month that they came out. We've already done four of them in the first two episodes. Mm. Um, If you're that into the detail of it, the first two that we did were Guilty by Barbara Streisand and The Blizzard of Oz by Ozzy Osbourne. I knew they did not come out that month, Henry, in January. I wanted to start the show off with a couple records that – I was surprised that I really liked that I had not really listened to in oh, a long yeah. time. Okay. And that's why I put them there. I didn't, I, I should have said that. I should have prefaced with that. I didn't know we were going to run into this kind of completism, but it's cool. I'm glad people care enough. Um, for February, one of the records came out on 3 1, and the other one came out on 1 1, and I just made a mistake. I just goofed. And those were just honest mistakes. So those so are playlists. Those are going to happen. The playlist is out on that uh, on Twitter right. right now. Do you remember what the two we're talking about? Yeah, End of the Century by the Ramones. Okay. Um, and Argy Bargy by Squeeze. Okay. And I might have been overzealous because I really wanted to talk about Argy Bargy and get happy. Uh, the Elvis Costello record together. Well, some of them can just work together. I mean, yeah, and and and, and just to let you guys out there know, we are trying to stay like right on top of it. However, there are going to be months where there are so many records released. That we kind of had to spread it out a little bit. We didn't want to cover more than five or six records an episode. But with that said, this month, March, will be the last one um, for a while before there's any out of sequence. There'll only be two more albums that are not covered in the month that they came out um, in later in the year. And I will let you know when those records are. But there's one record this month, and then that's it. So you guys won't have to sit through any more. Uh, out of out of sequence and if, uh, you, if you have a suggestion hit us up on twitter we'll be glad to work it in some kind of way yeah if we haven't if we haven't covered something you want to hear you know we will try okay Maybe so let's you about it let's okay. get, get out of all the boring stuff and let's go cover a record henry what's our first one billy joel glass houses all right so people who in glass houses shouldn't throw stones that's how you remember that Yes, that's how you remember that so or you could just read this, the, the the album cover this is what i the the, the album cover didn't say that. I think it does. If, if you flip, I, I did read that if you flip the record over on the back, there on some of them, there's a broken pane of glass with him looking out of it. Really? That's cool. That sounds way cooler than anything I heard on the album. <laughs> My, what why I, don't we, before we get into it, why don't we play a track? Yeah, which one are we going to play? Let's play uh, Don't Ask Me Why. Don't ask me why 
Okay, Henry, so Billy Joel's Glass Houses, which did come out on March 1st of 1980. What were your thoughts? So that's that song we just heard, Henry is in the back of his parents' Toyota Corolla, and I could remember how my, the seats felt, right? That sort of fake fake leather vinyl mm-hmm. that had little dots in it. Pleather. Pleather. But this was this song was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. I'm sure you heard it. Yeah, there were a lot. There were two or three songs off this record that were ubiquitous throughout the time, and I guess those never really bothered me until I listened to the whole record uh, together. You may, is, it, you may be right. Yes. Uh, Don't ask me why it was a hit. Yes. It's still rock and roll to me. Yes. Those the, were the hit. Those those three the the big hits. Yes. What do you so, think now versus how you felt? Uh, uh, apparently, then it it after the, the lasting fr- meaning it had after, for you was it, it didn't felt have, like pleather. No, no, it, I, it reminded me of being a kid uh, for a brief period of time, but I did, but I never listened to the record beyond um, the what was on the radio. Came, sure, right. So every it would it felt like every song was a rip of somebody else's work. Did you get that feeling? Like he's trying to cop fifties doo wop here. He's trying to cop another person's sound there. Like elements of it. Well, my my impression of it. Uh, and again, I'll start with my impressions. Then I knew I had an older brother, and we went to the beach with a couple of different couples my parents knew yeah, yeah. Uh, from work, and there was a bunch of kids running around. So there was the teenage crew which were like 16, 17, and had this tape. And so it was played a lot. And then the younger kids, we kind of absorbed it. Um, Then I liked it just because the older kids were playing it. But I was the same way as you. Did you you listen to the Just the hits. Yeah, we listened to the whole thing like front and back, but it wasn't. It was still just the hits or what turned people on, you know. But, but then, this was his like seventh album. Well, so here's right? here yeah. looking back now, the way I look at it is up until this album, he was mostly piano ballad, kind of the bar piano guy, mm-hmm. like a piano man is a fine example song, of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, like the that was his thing. So I felt like this was his attempt at doing a rock and roll record. The problem with it is to me is exactly what you uh, said a minute ago. It sounds like he did, he didn't really know how to do a rock and roll record, and he's kind of just copping style. It felt like it because I think he's a competent songwriter. So I think he kind of was like, well, if I do a, if I've got like a doo-wop-y kind of sound on this one, and and beef it up a little bit, that's rock and roll. And so this to me is his like, I'm not just a piano guy record. Uh-huh. Now you would have to say it succeeded because it had three pretty sizable hits on it yeah and it was uh, it was nominated for a grammy for best male uh it won grammy for best male rock vocal which it was why nom- we're reviewing this it record. was nominated for album of the year yes guess so what he lost to who did he lose to christopher cross wow well that tells you what was going on if at your the time. record lost to christopher cross and you're and you're trying to do a rock and roll record it was supposed to be his new wave rock a response to the popularity of sort of new wave punk. Well, I don't want to tease too far right. ahead, but I I really think it compares um, in a very similar fashion to a record we're going to cover next month by Pete Townsend. But I I like that record eminently better than I like this one. So but his voice is so is it? Would you call it iconic? Like yes. you immediately know Billy Joel when you yes. hear it. And I don't want to disparage I'm not like, a big Billy Joel guy, but I don't want to disparage like when he's in his element, of course he's What is it I don't like about it? 
Like it, it never resonated as authentic and true to me. No, and like it sounds like guy. it sounds like real throwaway song. It sounds like a guy that's trying to be something that he's not really, or or right, which yeah, made the song in a real competent way. Or like he he nailed three hits out of it. It's right. catchy, but it didn't ever feel authentic. No, it, it definitely me. feels more throwaway and disposable. One um, one reviewer that I read about this summed it up the way that I kind of felt about it. it. Says Billy Joel writes smooth and cunning melodies. And what many of his defenders say is true. His material's catchy, but then so is the flu. There you go. And I would say, so the way I felt about it then was just, I just knew it by the hits and it was okay. The way I feel about it now is it's not worth your time going back to listening to. Listening to. So I would skip this one. Yeah, you've heard the songs, all the good songs on it. Henry, our next record is Van Halen's Women and Children First, which came out on March 26th of 1980. That's right. And this song is Loss of Control. I've got, I got quite a bit to say about this. Go on, brother. So, and I, I think it's fair for me to say this just to give a disclaimer for how I feel about the record. My very f- first two concerts when I was a child were Frampton on the Frampton Comes Alive tour, which my parents told me and my older brother, who was 14 at the time, I was 12. Really? We must have a chaperone. So we called my grandparents, and my grandfather agreed to take us to Frampton Comes Alive. I did not get to stay for the encore. I heard um, that song, the famous song from that record, from the parking lot because my grandfather couldn't take it anymore. Do you feel like I do? Yes. You that heard was, that from the from I the heard that lot? from the parking lot in the car. He, he agreed to stay in the parking lot until the song finished. The next concert I went to was the Women and Children First Van Halen tour. Which my grandmother took us to because my grandfather said I can't I can't go did to another rock. Did she concert. wear ear earbuds? No. And here's the thing that's memorable about it to me, Henry. Let me do the quick setup. We were in the little arena in my little um, shit kicking Tennessee town where all mm-hmm. the metal bands came. Van Halen plays the loudest, craziest set that a ten year old, eleven year old could imagine. They right. were like bad boys, like everyone smoking pot around us. Could you I'm, tell? Did you know what pot smelled like? Well, yeah, then? I just smelled terrible to me. But my, you know, like that skunky kind of right. And my grandma, my straight laced grandma, is sitting there with me, just dying to leave. And then towards the end, someone throws a huge banner on the stage that the guys in Van Halen unfurl, which says "Fuck Iran," because it's right in the middle oh, of the man. Iran hostage crisis oh, of 1980. <laughs> and that's when my grandma pulled the plug, and I had to go. So I didn't get to see the encore of the Women and Children First tour either. However, I got to see the next two tours 
fair warning tour and the diver down, diver down. Um, by myself. My parents had given up and my grandparents wouldn't go. And then no they just said, you guys, so you went you and sat go. by yourself when I was 14. Well, my brother went with me who was okay. 16 at the time. So we got, okay, we so got, we got turned loose. That's good. But so, so women and children first has a special place in my heart. I don't know if I can judge it honestly because Henry, to me, it represented the most badass, um, scariest, sounding heavy music I'd ever heard at the time. And those guys thrilled me with how excitingly scary they were. Okay. So yeah, you can't judge this, but uh, I loved it at the time. Yeah. And I going right, back so, listening to it, it, it brought back a lot of those feelings. So I let am me going to you, give it a thumbs up, but I don't know if I can be objective. <laughs> you can't, the, um, from the perspective of a guy who first listened to Van Halen, uh, 1984, right. The mm-hmm. baby with the cigarette on the front. Totally different feel. Completely, you know, different. Um, and and that that was also demon. Like, I grew up this very conservative sort sure. of cultish thing. And any popular music that came in, oh, does the record cover have a baby smoking? Oh, my God. And it, you know, becomes a thing. A thing. And so if you listen to that, you're like a badass. Right. Um, but – Having listened to that pretty much and 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 listened forward, I had heard very little of Diver Down or Fair Warning. Um, Women and Children this First. This is the first, Hill. right? This is the first full pass I've taken at Women and Children First, and um, to me, it sounded very like raw. But then again, I've got headphones now. I don't know that it. I don't know that it played in the air as well as it does, like on your earbuds. Well, let me, let me, there, but it is a true rock record. Yeah. And let me say, here's a couple things about it. I think we can both agree on what, and, and these are things I like about it. it. It does sound just like raw power. And it sounds like young guys who are really thrilled with the, that, the pro- uh-huh. that power uh-huh. and the process. Number two, there's not a lot. There's maybe three actual songs on the record. The rest of it, you can tell are just ideas that Eddie Van Halen had on cool guitar licks that they turned into things. Yeah, yeah. Most of them have like uh, a breakdown part where David Lee Roth uh, says some uh, juvenile things that really played well with the 12 year old crowd at the mm-hmm. time. And then it just amps up into this guitar frenzy. But over, but, but beyond all of that, the exuberance and the, I don't, I didn't remember that. That it, it sounds there's like little, young guys in love with making a lot of noise. There's a little, which darkness. is kind of cool. There's a little darkness in it too. A lot of darkness. And like, you don't expect that coming from like Mr. Dave with the smile. Right, you right, know, right. Diamond that, Dave. Right. right. Then if you go back and you listen to, to this sort of darker record, you hear, you hear the beginnings of this sort of, um, what is the the showman-y kind of? He did a, he did his little solo EP uh, after 1984. Yeah, because he didn't like the direction they were going with Eddie Van Halen playing keyboards, and it led to the, him splitting off and doing the solo stuff. But that whole shit. But shtick, he did. It was almost it, like camp. What he did. That yeah. Right. That camp sort of came later. This this record was sort of the beginnings of that. Well, it, there's it, funny because you can hear. I don't know if you listen closely. The I, the the fourth song on the record, I believe. He actually scats at the end, like he's he's really? doing Scooby Doo bad. Ba, yeah, I heard that, and it reminded it's me really of low in the mix, and I forgot it reminded me of that. Remember, he did that doji doji bop, bop, yeah, that kind of thing. So this is not this right. He was already starting that kind of shit. Yeah, but um, I think honestly, listening back, I'd forgotten how Dave basically had like 
two things. He had like the the kind of sultry like voice like this, and then he had that weird scream they would do at the end of every line that ah thing, you know, it was really high. And then he did this scat stuff every now and then when he ran out of lyrics. So they, they, on this record, did they they sounded a little dangerous to me. I think so, and I think but in a controlled way. Yeah. Like looking backwards, yes. I could see why people would think these. And it's guys kind are... of interesting because I would, you would have thought the next record, "Fair Warning," was the the bridge to start and become 1984. It's not. "Fair Warning" is the the hardest, heaviest uh, downer Van Halen record, and then "Diver Down" is the one that starts pulling them towards pop. Uh, you know, mega yeah. stardom. It's because it's very clear on this record he's not Jimi Hendrix. He's uh he's he's more controlled and calculated than Jimmy yeah it's, that's ever the was. cool thing though it's uh, more of an eighties he's kind of more of the eighties like he and Randy Rhodes the finger tapping becomes yeah. more prevalent and it's more um like what we were talking about with Blizzard of Oz it's more um classical training than say Hendrix it's got much more of a I don't know if you if you go on we'll we'll get there but when you get to Diver Down there's a song he did which is just a instrumental, which I think he wrote because he was starting to get into keyboards, but it's played on a guitar through like a synth. Mm-hmm. But it's, if you didn't know, it sounds like a heavy metal guy trying to do Beethoven. I, you know, that kind yeah. of thing, that kind of classic, hooked on classical. Speaking kind of, of keyboards, the very first song on here and the cradle will rock. Right. That first bit everybody thinks is a guitar is a keyboard, right? It's, yeah, it's uh, and it's it's piped through his his guitar effects, but it is a keyboard. What is interesting? There's a record that we're going to cover next, Henry, which I'll let you introduce. But um, before we do that, I I wanted I wanted to let the folks out there know that I played the two records back to back: Van Halen, Women and Children first, and the next record we're going to cover. And if you really want to blow your mind, play those two records, any track off of off of either record back to back and and you'll get a real feel for how crazy the difference of music in the early 80s could be popular music um i'm gonna say thumbs up on this record real quick henry what are you yeah gonna thumbs, say? Up. Yeah. thumbs up yeah i gotta give it another shot well what is that next record i'm talking about this band is called air supply and the record is called lost in love and we're gonna hear this song i can't get excited that we play I can't get excited I'm, I'm feeling that you had a literal reaction to this record of not being able to get excited by it I could not the, after the initial <laughs> wave of depression for the first because this the, this record was played all the time at, on the radio yes at my house yes this was this was coming out soft of, rock. This was, and so in my opinion, this was the tail end of the late 70s soft rock 
James Taylor. Was, um, I, I mean, from what I understand, it's like the beginning of it. Like, no, I feel like this was the more of the end of the sensitive guy type period. We were moving away from that, in my opinion. You'd already had the guy, um, the Welsh guy that was in uh, Fleetwood Mac before, Bob yeah. Welsh. Oh, Sentimental yeah. Lady. You had all that um, late 70s, uh, Rupert Holmes, all that kind of stuff where the sensitive man was taking over. And, and these guys. So here, here's what I, here was my first impression, Henry. <laughs> these two dudes are what the Everly brothers would have sounded like if they were fucked up and bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even guys, care enough to research. Are these brothers? Are these guys brothers? I didn't look. I didn't care enough. They're. they're Every song is about love or a woman, right? Uh, the first song, Lost in Love. I'm, I'm all out of love. And you know, every song, did you notice this? Every song references you. Yeah. He's speaking directly to, to you. To you, the woman. Right. Every song. It's I, and I don't you. mean like most songs. I mean, mm-hmm. every song is written for you, the woman. They're, the only way, the only like... Songs that get away from that idea are American Hearts, which is about divorce. And I, I think it's Old Habits Die Hard that has this really lame blues lick in it. Like the only one on the whole record. Well, I also like, did you notice this? I also like that they, they started out with their shitty kind of version of like an Everly Brothers, like uh, acoustic guitar. But two songs start that way. And then by the end, they're amped up. But, but the way that Air Supply amps up a song is just, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's like if you amped up cotton candy and made it more cotton candy. I wanted to go, all right, so they re-recorded two songs from the first record in the, uh, for this one. Like, Clive Davis produced the whole record, but he remixed Lost in Love. Apparently he heard the first version that they did on the record before and and improved upon that. So it's like they, they wrote the re- a whole other record around the two songs that Clive liked on the one before it <laughs> and Oof. put it out. Terrible. But it, um, it's, it's been called insipid. I have to agree with that. Yes. If I heard it, Henry, believe it or not, I heard a lot of Barry Manilow in this. I guess I could see that it, because it's written from the sappy love song point of view. Yeah. And the way they enunciate too, there's a very, um, What's loungy it? kind of enunciation going on. And the Vegas, other, Vegas. It reminded the other me of guy's kind of got Vegas that thing. high voice. High. Oh, yeah. Was Yes around during this time? <laughs> I think Yes was still so around. So was he yes. trying to like ate that guy in Yes? Honestly, and this is not, I'm not joking. I think they were definitely going for an Everly Brothers, like, um, sappy, not that, not the Everly Brothers were sappy, but like a sappy version of love songs, but like with the harmonies, two dudes doing harmonies, like, What's your, what's your, is this a thumbs down? It's a, it's a no go back. You know, uh, you know, last week I said that you should listen to the Ramones because the Ramones end of the century. That made the cut, right? I did. Uh, the Ramones end of the century because, um, it sounds like a train wreck that you should listen to. This is a train. It's not even a train wreck. It's, it's, it's just, uh, it's not even fun in a train wreck kind of way is what you're saying. I think it has something in common with, um, with Billy Joel's record in that it's so fucking calculated. It's meant to move units. All right. Well, let's, let's move from that unit to one that I know Henry loves, a record I know Henry loves from another podcast we've done, mentioned it in the past. And this is Genesis with the album Duke. Henry, what song do you want to play from Duke? 
We're going to play Misunderstanding. Okay, here it is. Henry, that was the mega hit of 1980. Mega hit. Misunderstanding by Genesis, led by the amazing Mr. Phil Collins. Would you just cut and paste my feedback from from the other pod about Duke onto this? Um, I don't. I think you are. This is your opportunity to be sadistic with me. I think you deliberately picked it so that I would have to listen to it yet again and give. Fresh feet open up old wounds anew, and let me bleed all over it. Well, let me let me first again. ask: Did you actually listen I to did. it? Again? I did. Uh, I'm hearing what you hear in it, but I I don't love it, Chris. There's only so many da 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 da. Those keyboards, what in the hell? They were so. I felt I started hearing them try to be Rush. On the record. I, I think there's a lot of similarities to Rush. I don't like the way that they pretend to be a prog band and then just write this like straight up hit in it. And it doesn't, it's, it doesn't feel well placed. To well, me. this is like, so Duke is like a transition record. This is their, yeah. they're, they're becoming um, not a prog band. They're starting to become a pop band. There's only three of them, by the way. Yeah, and it's just three at guys. At this time. I mean, do you like Phil Collins? Sure. Been a big Genesis fan ever since the release of Duke. Before that, I didn't really understand any of their work. It was too arty, too intellectual. Who Listen said to that? the brilliant ensemble playing at Banks, Collins, and Rutherford, and you can practically hear every nuance of every instrument. Who says that? That was Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> who glad, I agree I'm with glad wholeheartedly. Hear, I'm glad to hear I have nothing in common with him. On his famous monologue about Genesis before he attempted to murder two girls. So, yeah, I'm going to – I hate that I agree with Patrick Bateman, but I absolutely love Duke because – and, Henry, what I love about it is I hate late-period Genesis. But this is the one you should probably start to hate then. I no, think. no, because I don't like – 
proggy stuff too much either. It was like I, I love really so it's love. Like, it's not it, you're. Uh, let me guess. It's, it's not too much of one or the other. That's right. Is what you're telling it's me. Just the right mix. Just the, of the right. Two. Yeah, exactly. It hits you in the sweet spot between. Oh, this is not really prog rock. Uh, it's not quite wholly a pop record either. Right. It's yeah. it's perfectly in between. Also, and I and I hate to be the one to do two stories, but I kissed my first girl. Kissed my first girl. Is that the right way to say it? Kissed my I first was kissed girl. by a girl for the first time while Misunderstanding was playing in the background. Well, of course. So it, it also, you know, right then and there, I was digging it's just, it. just, you're branded. Sure, of course. Branded with the Genesis Duke forever. <laughs> but I really like Duke. I was really disappointed when I asked you to listen to it the last time that you didn't get it in the same way I do. Also, I want to address this keyboard issue that you keep going back to. What is the deal? Is it that specific keyboard sound that's just so 80s. dated? Well, it's, it's so course, dated, but, but it's dated. But like not in the good way? It's dated in the same way I think, like Tangerine Dream is dated, which I think is amazing. What is it with the drum rolls that always go from low to high? Like that became something he did all the time. Well, he had, that, he had the big hit in the air tonight. Which dun, I don't. Dun, 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 dun. Right. The whole song was based He's on like, that. oh, it worked on all the prog stuff. But on, what if on, what if just that's part of his drumming style? Like, he just happens to do that a lot. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, but the guy in the National has this very similar beat on all oh, their yeah. songs. It's like, dun, 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 And it's like, dude, that's a great beat, but, like, you put it on everything. I almost feel like sometimes they're like, have you got a beat? We've got this new song, and we've got this. And then that guy starts going, dun, 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 dun. And they're like, cool, cool. That'll work. Just keep doing that. What is And what a lot of those bands um, that had prog rock beginnings eventually had to wrestle that shit into pop. Yeah. Journey did it. Yes, Chicago did. Chicago it. did it. Yes, and I think I think to give them credit, even though I, I think me and you both will say when we knew each other, probably late period Genesis and Huey Lewis were up there on our. Yeah, we, we would murder somebody. Quick. Yeah. yeah, but you have to say Genesis made the transition better than any. I mean, Invisible Hard Touch time. is like the creme de la creme of 80s sounding radio pop you wouldn't even if you didn't know better you wouldn't know that that band was I originally a prog band. i didn't know like it would you have know. shocked you well i had a blank slate until i started paying attention to music right and uh and had to go back and realize that oh wait phil collins was in genesis and they weren't always this way oh wait Peter Gabriel was in Genesis, and they weren't always that way. Right. You know, these guys well, had flipped it around two times. Well, just to to focus in a little bit more on Duke also, there are there are a couple songs like Misunderstanding and another. there's another hit on this record that I think kind of make the transition. Um, I mean, if you just listen to those songs, you would think, wow, this is... I don't hear a lot of prog in here at all. But there's definitely a couple tracks where they... Turn it on again? Yeah, turn it on again. Where the prog kind of uh, is still in there. The prog elements are still in there. But overall, I think it's a very palatable record. If if you're not into prog rock, but... And, and you're like... I, I guess I was trying to think, Henry, like when we talked about Permanent Waves. Mm-hmm. I think Genesis kinds of, kind of turns off a lot of people, in particular women... Mm-hmm. Because of that whole proggy thing, I watched do- a documentary on Netflix about Genesis, and it was it had the same bent to it. Like, mm-hmm. why do only nerdy forty and fifty year old men like Genesis? And 
And they were talking about old, you know, like Phil, uh, Peter Gabriel Genesis. But I think this record is an entryway for people. I don't. I think it's got enough of the old seventies. Cool then it would stuff. send them backwards a little bit, and or or yeah, or, or like or if you hate Invisible Touch, I think you you might could deal with this record. So I'm going to give it a thumbs up. Of course, I like it a lot. Yeah, I'm not a fan, but listen to it if you like torture. Okay, and what is our last Sorry, record that of the week? Rude. That did sound. I, I, let me backtrack. I don't mean to be so. <laughs> it wasn't a torture. I was trying to be funny. I was trying to work on my banter. Anyway, but yeah, it's not. Uh, it's not nearly it's not that. Your, it's it's not, not air supply for sure. No, it's definitely not going to make your nose bleed or your head go into migraines. I think if you if you're interested in that sort of sweet spot between prog and pop music that uh, that Chris likes, then you should probably listen to this record. There you go. That's about as good as Henry's going to say about it. So, Henry, our last record is by George Winston, and it is called Autumn. This record came out on March 1st, 1980, and we are going to play the track C. Henry, I'm going to give you first shot at this Ooh, one. Ooh, thanks. This is to make me feel bad for what I said about Genesis. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I listened to this uh, not expecting much, not expecting to like it, really. Had you heard it when you were a kid? Had never heard it. Put it on on my drive to work and put on the coffee, and I just let it play. And the first thing that, I, that, that uh, got my attention was how kind of sparse it was. You know, it was just the piano, just the notes on the piano. Like you could physically, you could hear the hammer hit the strings a little bit. I think they got rid of the the, the mechanical movement of it. But if you listen, it was to the right. Of the, you could tell they put like a mic on the left, a mic in the middle, and a mic on the right, and panned it left and right. But I was unexpectedly sort of touched by it, really, it, because it was unassuming. I believe. It, it, I didn't have high expectations of it. I didn't expect it to hit me over the head with bombast like some of these other records were meant to to deliver to me. So I, I had it was a really pleasant time listening to this record um, from beginning to end. Yeah, and we put this record on the list because it got a five star 
review on all music, which I don't think either one of us had heard it. Um, or I didn't know much about George Winston. We've kind of made, we're going to talk about this just for a few minutes when we finish about our thoughts on reviewing jazz records. That's kind of a weird area for us. Yeah. I guess this record is technically jazz, but I consider it See, more like. Okay, uh, well, we can talk about that. New well, agey uh, music. It, maybe even yeah. New Age is, was not invented yet, but it, it Was he like the. St- from what I read, like this is, this is the record that put Wyndham Hill on the map. And okay. If you asked good. me, uh, what do you know about Wyndham Hill? I'd be like, it's my parents, it's Osti Spumanti, it's uh, Paco Bell's Canon, it's that kind of New Age. Right. Plinky, plinky kind of stuff. music. This might have been the start of that. And my my impressions of it was that I, I really liked it. Yeah. I really like what you were talking about before, just the the ideas. You can hear the ideas that he had for the it was I don't want to say songs because that that's my one criticism of it. Yeah. It sounded like he had I don't want to say riffs because that's probably the wrong thing, but he had these lines mm-hmm. and he would basically start each track with this line a basic kind of line and then it would build in all these different ways and it would come back which is kind of a jazz kind of thing i guess my one criticism of it was he would let each one build into like 20 different things Mm -hmm. which i was hoping he had more of an editor who would go then this one that one and this one are all cool and work together and they have this feel don't you don't need to i know you can do uh, something with fifths and you know, oh, let it go, drop, drop. You know, he, I got your like where he took the left turn. Yeah, a he, times. and it seemed like every time in every song at some point he's going to take a left turn just to take the left turn. Did, so you thought that was overly cute? Yeah. So, so I found it interesting. That well, the in, well, the interesting thing for me, which was a godsend for me to compare this record to, was I had just recently found this record by a pianist named Max Richter, mm-hmm. a, a new record. And the only reason I found it was he did a soundtrack for some movies, and one of the movies he did, um, Tilda Swinton was in, and Tilda Swinton did some voiceovers on his record because he's like George Winston, just a piano. Sometimes he has cello and stuff, but real just sparse orchestrated stuff. Yeah. And so I listened to it, his record, and I loved the different sensibility. Like they're they're mining the same fields. But Max Richter has all of this built-in irony and angst and stuff of now. Mm-hmm. And everything stays more one or two ideas just droning over and over with a lot of reverb. Mm-hmm. And it's ominous. And it just and it's got this, like, obviously he's listened to Philip Glass and mm-hmm. Brian Eno to it. Right. Where it's like, it's not going to move a lot. Whereas I'm feeling like George Winston, if he was doing Autumn now... Would be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna scale back some of this, put some of the moodiness, maybe put it, maybe record it in a big room that's got tons of reverb, so that it kind of because so, yeah. it sounded more bright. You know, I, I'm exactly feeling the same way. Not without the not with the Max Richter idea, but I, he's still doing music today. Right. I want to know what he's done recently. I did a little bit of research into some of his um, where he got the ideas for this. You might find this really interesting. He said that the album that inspired Autumn, this one, the most, was The Doors' first album. Really? Yeah. 
Can you believe that? No, I cannot. He said, of all the composers whose music he loves to interpret, the Doors and Jim Morrison songs have taken the longest for me to make them sound how I want to. Some have taken 34 years. He plays Doors songs now um, all the time. But apparently he was heavily influenced by uh, Ray Manzarek and the Doors. And I can I, I can kind of see that now you mentioned just the way that he yeah. would build on those uh, simple lines. And the Coltrane bit. Like, that's probably the left-hand right. turn that he would take on a few of those songs that I found uh, interesting. Um, I just think it... over the top, but I know exactly the moments you're talking Like, now, the sensibility of a person now playing the same style probably wouldn't take those showy yeah. left turns because it's it's more about mood than it is about but it's, it's almost like i could take this i had the the great thing about it was i was listening to it without looking at the cover for me like the cover dates it a little like to a place it shouldn't like it looks a little too windham hilly to i was gonna say it looks like you know the prototype I mean? of a windham hill or like cover. one of those records that you would get at the truck stop or, do you know what i mean or what was the store in the mall in the 90s that's Brookstone that yeah, sold all the yeah. Wyndham Hill stuff. Like, yeah. yeah, you could buy this record or you could buy one that's like Creek Noises or yeah. just shit like that. And I don't know that it's fair. Like, I think that you could repackage this record with a different kind of artwork, maybe something a little more modern. And I bet the kids would just eat it up. And for the completists out there who are grinding their teeth and throwing their uh, computers against the wall because this record came out in November of 1980, I do know that. We're and that's probably why I called it autumn. Uh, we're covering it now because when we get to November of 1980, there were so many records that we all we already had to split it into two episodes. I did want to cover this record, and we had an extra slot here at the end of March, and that's why I stuck it here. But it is not because I didn't know. So I, what I would <laughs> like to say about this record is I really liked it, I and did. I would definitely recommend going back and giving it a listen, especially if you're Henry or my uh, age, 40s. 50s um it's something you can put in and you know henry this is funny because i say this a lot about uh, brian eno and ambient music now it's something you can put in and not pay attention to and it's perfect and that seems to be more and more appealing to me as i get older whereas i think yeah when we were kids we had to sit and just yeah it was so everything was so pre, what's the word prescient or and in the moment and right. intense. I can't it imagine had to be something sitting know? in front of the speakers now, buying a record, coming home and just sitting in front of the speakers for forty minutes and just looking at the speakers, listening like I did yeah. when I was eighteen. I, I don't do that now, but <laughs> no. this is a great record to put on as background music. And yeah, I'm um, glad you felt the same way. I, for some reason, it's the first one that has surprised me. Right with how much I liked it. Right. And, and that's that good. I would listen and that's to the, it again. That's, why, that's part of the reason why we're doing this podcast. So, he, so. This, yeah, this guy's case number one. Like all the other stuff that I may not have ever heard before, like the Eno records and stuff, I kind of knew I would l- probably like them. This one I had, had no expectation of liking until right. we did. Well, uh, before we give our picks of the week, uh, or picks of the month, I should say, Henry, uh, we did want to discuss why we're not or uh, how, how we came okay. to the decision not to cover jazz. We, we were going. The reason there was an open slot for George Winston's Autumn was because we were going to cover a, a record that got a five star review on All Music by an artist named Art Pepper. Right. Which is as close. It, I don't want to say it's free jazz, but it was. It's. I want to. Yeah, I want to talk about that too. It's, it's jazz. Okay. The record's called Straight Life. Um, it was 
a re-recording, right, of some of his other stuff. Right. Art Pepper was was repeatedly in jail. Did you know that? No, I didn't know he a was, lot of the backstory. He did you. several prison stints and extend from his addiction to heroin, but all the reports say that the that it didn't really change the quality of his work. Now, when I put a jazz record on, I can't tell if it's good or bad. I don't know if that's because I don't listen to music the right way. It also makes me wonder if I understand what jazz is. Like you mentioned jazz in the context of, of George Winston not too long ago. Right. And I was like, is that jazz? What is jazz? Like, is, T, is Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, are they jazz? You know, to me, when I listen to this record, I can hear that this is clearly quintessential jazz music, the kind that you might hear in a in a jazz bar with the cello guy and the piano guy and the drummer and the saxophonist in the in the typical stereotypical jazz style. But I can't tell you if it's good or bad. Like I could listen to this and it sounds like jazz, and I could go to the jazz club with a bunch of you know. Mostly amateur musicians, I guess, playing jazz. And well, I may not be able to well, tell you the difference. That's one of the funny things, and I know this is a cliche, but it's one of the funny things about uh, both of us have played in bands for a long time, and we've been around clubs and musicians. And I would say 90% of the people I know that love jazz are musicians. And yeah. I've always there's always been the cliche that uh, jazz is for musicians because if you play jazz, it's fun as hell. Mm-hmm. If you listen to jazz, it's boring as hell. Now, I wouldn't go that far because obviously there's some uh, jazz that we all can like. I, I love, of course, like Miles Davis and stuff like that, but I don't know that I understand it. And Henry and I both felt for this podcast, especially since we uh, we didn't want to incur any criticism about covering records that we don't really know how to review, we're going to stay in our lane and we're going to cover mostly uh, rock music and popular music and not foray into telling you what's good or bad jazz wise because but, but that, that we don't really know that doesn't mean we won't talk about stealing dan sometime i mean no and i know, don't i don't consider like, that i mean but yeah but obviously if we feel like it's something we know about but i'm not going to tell you why this miles davis record is not as good as oh yeah uh, like coltrane or whatever yes because yeah. I, I honestly am like you i i don't know if even the jazz that I like, if I like it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And a lot of jazz sometimes sounds the same to me. And I don't want to offend people that know about the genre by covering it. I, um, that being said, I think that the jazz players are probably some of the best in the world. Definitely. And I know yeah. enough about music to know that those guys are great players, yeah. being a musician myself. But that doesn't mean that I know... Uh, yeah, you know the the difference in me being a painter who paints pictures and then discussing the Mona Lisa are that those are two different worlds. Yeah, so, so that's why we've kind of made a rule: we're going to stay away from jazz. Um, if you're looking at the all music list and you're seeing five star records, we're not covering. If you're doing that, I'm super happy that you're that into <laughs> it. But that is that is what's going on. So Henry, and send us your jazz review. Sure, send I'll, us your I'll jazz review. We'll, we'll read it. And so Henry, tell me your pick of the pick of the week or pick of the month for I, March of nineteen. I'm going to steal George Winston from you and give him a big thumbs up. And uh, everybody should go listen to this record called Autumn. It's on Spotify. The guy's name is George Winston, and he was great. 
Okay, and my pick of the month, um, I don't know. We haven't discussed this. Can we pick the same record, or do we have to pick a different record? I don't know, man. So I guess we could. I'm not going to pick women and children first because I'm recusing myself. I feel like I'm not. I'm too biased, but that really had a special place in my heart as a kid. I do really like Duke, so I'm going to pick Duke just because I think we should both pick a different record. Yeah. But really, if I didn't know what you'd pick, I was going to pick the Autumn That's, record by George Winston yeah, as well. Makes me happy. So yeah. by default, I'll pick Duke. It, not that it's not a great record, but the George Winston record really, I think, it was definitely something I listened to multiple times, not just because we were doing this podcast. Yeah, that's so, great. Big victory. Big victory. Victory in uh, in month three. Yeah, so that's, that's March of 1980 for the most part. And as I said at the top of the show, pretty much except for two more records, the rest of 1980, and we're covering 78 records, folks, for the year 1980. There's only going to be two more that we're going to cover out of sequence, and I'll tell you what they are and why we're doing it. But until then, our next month is going to be April of 1980. And Henry, do you want to give them a little preview of what we're what we're covering? Oh, uh, let's see. Okay, next week we're going to talk. I don't have those in front of me, Chris. Oh, I've got them. Tell me. We've got a little bit of feelies with some crazy rhythms. We've got some Judas Priest. We've got X. I know a band that you uh, like a lot. Yes. Uh, we've got Pete Townsend, who put out a record that I really want to go back and compare to this Billy Joel garbage we covered this week. <laughs> And then we have a second record uh, featuring Brian Eno, uh, this time with another collaborator by the name of Harold Budd. Sweet. So we've got all kinds of different music, and it'll be a lot of fun. And join us for that. And if you do want to contact us or make comments about the show, Henry, tell them, tell them all about all that. Right. If you like our show or you like the records we're choosing, if you please rate and review us on iTunes, you'd be in good company. You can also listen uh, on Stitcher. We're working on get it, getting us on Spotify. I haven't gotten feedback from them yet but hopefully we'll have that going pretty soon you share it with your friends we are on itunes as well right yes we are on itunes you can chat us up on twitter at 80s exposed or on email right now at at 80s music exposed at gmail.com you might be interested in our sister pod it's been well underway since last year it's called the no gd band podcast we're a little more current uh, a little less wistful maybe a little less professional but um we talk about current events today. We get off topic, and we generally run it into the ground. Chris, guess what? What? I made you a mixtape. 